Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to the first teaching class on the Gospel of Mark for 2022. As you probably know, in the Thames Valley Churches of Christ, we're going through the Gospel of Mark in January and February at the beginning of this year. We're using a combination of daily devotional podcasts, which you can find on the Facebook page and the podcast feed, Sunday sermons focusing on one particular part of a chapter per week, and then these teaching classes which I will produce um, one two three four I think eight or nine of these will come out each focused on a particular chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Now these classes are designed to be used as essentially a discussion starter in our smaller groups. So that might be your location, might be your family group or whatever kind of group you have. I'm not trying to do give every possible detail and nuance of every chapter, that's not possible in these classes but to give us some things to think about and then to discuss so that we can get deeper into the message of the Gospel of Mark. And as we discuss it together, we will learn together and pray, please God, we will grow together. That's the idea. So where are we today? Well, I'm going to look at Mark chapter 2, but first a little bit of context. Um, I'm sure you'll have heard from Mark chapter 1, perhaps last Sunday. And in Mark chapter 1, we had the, uh, the situation where John the Baptist is preparing the way, uh, telling everybody that this one still to come is going to be more powerful than he. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. The Spirit comes down and God's voice speaks. You're my son whom I love. I'm well pleased with you. He goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by uh, Satan. The announcement of the good news now has come. Uh, The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. So this is what the message is all about. He calls his first disciples, the fishermen. He drives out an impure spirit. People are amazed not only at his power, but his authority and, of course, his teaching. And he heals many, uh, visits Peter's home and heals Peter's mother-in-law. Early in the morning, he goes off to a solitary place to pray, showing us the priority of his relationship with God and then the mission. He's got to go other places to preach. At the end of the chapter, a man with leprosy comes and begs, asking if he's willing, if you're willing, make me clean. So then we learn, yes, Jesus is willing to make people clean as he does indeed heal that man. Then we're in chapter 2. Now we're going to look at a bit more detail at verses 1 to 12. Uh, we'll come back to that. So let's skip that for a moment, the healing of the, of the man uh, paralyzed. And let's have a look at verses 13 to 17 first. The calling of Levi and Jesus eating with sinners. Now what's going on here? Again, I'm not going to read uh, all the texts here because it would just take too long for the purpose of this class. But have a look at it and see what you think. Stop and have a read. He goes uh, to the home of Levi and he calls him. He's there eating and the people are very confused about why he's eating with Levi, this sinner. Who was Levi? He would have been in the employ of Herod Antipas, the Roman-supported governor of the region. So in collaboration with the Romans, not a popular thing to do. He was effectively a Roman employee and he got his position by bidding to raise as much tax as possible. So the most ruthless, efficient tax raiser would be the one who gets the job. Again, not exactly a popular person in local society. As is put in one of the commentaries I read about this, by calling Levi to personal fellowship and service, because he called him to, well, he went to eat with him and then to to follow him. By calling Levi to that personal fellowship and service, Jesus would have offended many, raising questions in their minds about his judgment, loyalty, and purity. It's important for us to think about that. Are we associating with the wrong people? As in, perhaps the right people are the wrong people, or the wrong people are the right people. Who do we associate with, and how do we feel about that? And this second call to follow here, as he does, uh, Levi does follow him, 
is very different from the first one. The first one in chapter one, he's got the fishermen there. Uh, they are, in a sense, normal people. Levi is not normal in that sense. Uh, you you may, may even be that Jesus called him to follow because he knew it would cause offense. Not to say that was the only reason, but perhaps having called some ordinary fishermen, he thought, no, it's time to show the people around me that I'm calling all kinds of people, even the maladjusted, um, rejected people of the day. Then we go on to Jesus being questioned about fasting. Again, have a look at this passage from verse 18 down to uh, verse 22. And the Pharisees do not understand what's going on. How come John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting? Yours aren't. What's going on, Jesus? So the Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, and they did it, most people think they did it, as, in a sense, a, a visible rebuke to Israel. To the body of Israel, to the people, the whole group, if you like. Look at us Pharisees, we're fasting because God is upset with you, with all of us, but especially you, and we're fasting to try and convict you so that you will mourn, like us, the state of our relationship with God and repent, and then perhaps God will see fit to rescue us like he did in the exile many centuries before. So the reason for the fasting was to mourn over the sinfulness and the lack of purity among the people of God, which was, in the Pharisees' minds, delaying the arrival of Messiah. What an irony. That's what they're doing, and yet Messiah is right here, in front of them, talking to them, demonstrating a different vision of the kingdom to the one they expected, of course. So the intent of their fasting was doubtless, you could say, noble in its origins, but it became corrupted as a show of piousness, and you'll see Jesus rebuking that later on in the Gospel. Uh, uh, and in particular, you can see that it's not really true um, righteousness because there was no desire to help others. So they would rebuke Jesus for healing people when they should be thinking about healing them, but say, look, 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 we're fasting. That's the main point. So what's going on here? Jesus is confusing people, and you'll see this over and over in the Gospel of Mark. A really interesting Bible study is to skim through, looking at all the times that people were confused about what he was doing and what was going on. So he confuses the Pharisees. Uh, because he's teaching about the kingdom as a an imminent event. It's it's coming now. Uh, and he was talking about that whilst not mourning over the state of Israel. So they thought that wasn't that was inappropriate. He should be mourning. He does mourn occasionally. Uh, we do know that he wept over Jerusalem. But his general disposition was one of it's good news. There's joy here. The the angels, of course, announced that. We just had Christmas. Good news of great joy for all of humankind. So Jesus' view of the kingdom's approach uh, was one of joy, not of mourning, essentially. He was, as we learn later, a bridegroom attending a wedding. He was not a mourner attending a funeral. Does this characterize the way that we live? Does this characterize the way that we portray Christianity to the rest of the world? A Christian's settled general disposition is a default disposition of joy not a mourning. There are times to mourn, of course there are, but the general disposition is good news. Look, good news. Christ has come. The kingdom is here. Let's join in and enjoy it. Then after this, we go on to verses 23 to 28, and here we have Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. Again, the Pharisees accuse him. Why are your disciples picking the grains, um, which is unlawful on the Sabbath? So have a look at that passage, 23 to 28. The point is not, I think, when he, he says his, his iconic phrase uh, at the end of this section, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So 
the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what is Jesus saying here? So the point is probably not so much people are more important than rules, although that may be true, but that Jesus is the one who is able to reinterpret rules in the light of his mission, and that such rules are only relevant if they further his mission, the mission, that, of course, that God has given him. So the rules are not the mission. Christ is the mission. This is important for us to bear in mind. There are certain ways of doing church and Christianity. We can support them with Scripture, but it's Christ is the point. Christ is the mission, not the way we do things. So the real point of all the Sabbath incidents that we've seen so far, and we'll see a lot more in Mark's Gospel each time, there are questions about the Sabbath, healings on the Sabbath, all kinds of things. The, the point is becoming clearer now. The Pharisees are about to move from reacting to the incidents to seeking to catch Jesus with them. There's a titanic struggle going on here. Are the Pharisees the true guardians of the Sabbath and of God's way of doing things? Or perhaps is Jesus the, uh, the new sheriff in town? This is the, the tussle going on. And as we go through the Gospel of Mark again and again, you will see this confusion. You'll see this redefining of things. And my appeal as we finish this part of what I want to talk about and then go back to the beginning of the chapter is to allow Jesus to define himself to you and I. Let him define himself. Let's not let our preferences define him, our experiences define him, define him, our church upbringing and background define him, what others say about him in uh, on YouTube's uh, um, uh, videos and uh, podcasts and books we read. All these things can be tremendously helpful, and we should read and uh, widely and everything. But we've got to let him define himself. His, let him define his mission. Let him define his community, what we call the church. Let's let him do that rather than our uh, preconceived ideas. So that's a challenge to you and I, especially if you've been a Christian a while, is to let Jesus continue to reveal himself to us. Because for sure, neither you nor I nor anyone I know knows everything about him. So let's let him uh, define himself. Now I'd like to go back to the beginning of the chapter to look in a bit more detail at the first 12 verses, the, the healing of the paralyzed man. So Jesus comes home to Capernaum. It might even be his own home this actually happens in. They gather in such large numbers, no room left, not even outside the door. He preached the word to them. There's a, this is a highly pressurized situation, very intense. Everybody's uh, squeezed in like sardines. Perhaps you've been at something like a sporting event where you, you kind of couldn't move. You were so pressed in. That's what it's like, very intense. And some men come with uh, bringing a paralyzed man and they, they carry him and they can't get into Jesus because of the crowd. They open up the roof, dig through and lower him down in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he saw their faith, the friend's faith on the roof, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Teachers of the Lord are like that. Why is this fellow talking like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? He knew in his spirit. That's what they were thinking. He said to them, why are you thinking like this? What's easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, uh, get up, take your mat, go home. He got up, uh, took his mat, walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Sure they hadn't, and not sure you and I have either. What an astonishing story. 
let's talk a little bit about some things that come out of this, at least for me, and you can have a discussion about it and see what's relevant for you. So the question I'd like us to discuss at the beginning here is, why does Jesus forgive him rather than heal him? Why is that the priority? What can you deduce from this passage that might give you a clue or from what you know about Jesus as to why he starts with forgiveness and then later on he does go on to heal him but it doesn't look like his intention is to heal him and perhaps he never would have healed him unless the Pharisees had questioned his declaration that the man's sins were forgiven. So what does this tell you about Jesus? What does it tell you about his mission? What does it tell you about his heart? What does it tell you just fundamentally about what the kingdom is all about? As we know Jesus healed many, we've had that already in chapter 1, and we see it later, in, uh, much more in the Gospel. So why might he start with forgiveness for this man? That's a question for us to discuss. And perhaps a secondary question is, if you'd been that man, if you'd been that man, would, have you, have been, would you have been disappointed? You're paralyzed. Your friends carry you, dig through the roof, lower you in front of Jesus, and... And then Jesus says, yeah, you're forgiven. Would you have been disappointed? Would you, were you expecting something else? What do you, what do you think? I, I have my thoughts about that, but I'm not going to share that now because I think that's a good discussion to have. The teachers of the law don't like it. They're, they, they're thinking in their own hearts, why is he talking like that? He's blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone. Jesus then, then does this very interesting, um, has an interesting argument he puts forth to them saying, well, look, what's easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up, take your mat and walk? And so what's going on here? So his argument seems to be that since the healing would be visible and the forgiveness is invisible, therefore the healing is harder because anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but you can't really know if it's happened. It's invisible. Whereas if I say, hey, you're healed, get up, take your mat and go home, and it happens, that's obviously harder because that sort of thing just doesn't happen every day of the week. So if he can do that harder thing, then surely he can do the easier thing, which is to forgive. And this kind of arguing may not appeal to us or work as well for us as it might for a first century um, uh, audience, but there's something appropriate about this argument for his audience uh, that he's uh, demonstrating here. So why was the healing of the man an authentication of his authority to forgive sins? Because it's easier to say something than to do it. If he can do the visibly impossible, then he can do the invisibly impossible. So the man is healed, and then Jesus gives him instructions. Get up, take your mat, go home. He got up, took his mat, and went home. I would submit that we're seeing faith demonstrated here, and faith highlighted by Mark. He wants us to see this. He wants us to see not only that the faith of the friends that brought the man to Jesus was rewarded, but this man's faith was rewarded. Because how does he demonstrate faith here? He demonstrates faith by being radically, riskily obedient. What, what might have happened if he tried to get up and couldn't? How, what, how foolish he might have looked. But he does. He gets up, takes his mat, and walks out in full view of them all. So the the point I'd like to make from this, and I think it would make a very fruitful discussion in a small group, is over the nature of this faith and the connection between faith and obedience. It seems to me that we can sometimes misunderstand the whole issue of obedience and see it as something which is quite 
uh, restrictive or um, almost like a threat. Unless you do this, you will not. And there's some of that sometimes in, in, in the Gospels. But here we have an instruction by Jesus that needed obeying. And we have a person willing to obey. And then we see that the consequences of that are healing, a demonstration of God's power, amazement for people around, a, a, a evidence of the kingdom being real and being present, showing who Jesus truly is and what he's able to do. We see a life transformed. We see a crowd transfixed. We see amazing things that God is doing. And it's partly about the power of Jesus. Of course it is, primarily about the power of Jesus. But it is also and necessarily about the obedience of the person given the opportunity to obey. And I, I sense that there's something around this that could liberate many of us into uh, a more uh, a full experience of what it means to have Christ in us and guiding us through his spirit, through his word. Obedience is not a negative thing. See, none of the power of Jesus would have made any difference to this man if he hadn't taken Jesus at his word and done what Jesus said. So obedience is not meant to be something, it's not meant to be something to earn favor, to keep God on our side. Obedience is a way, how can you put this? Obedience is a way to experience the power of God in our lives. I think that's it. Obedience is a way, it's a channel, it, it, it's a way of experiencing the power of Christ, power of God, the power of the Spirit, in my life, in your life. That's what obedience is. It's not about keeping a rule, doing something just because it's right. This is an aspect of dutifulness that's, that's not, not unhealthy, but it's not primarily about that. It's about you and I experiencing God personally. And obedience is the, is the channel for that. The outcome here is conditioned by the kind of faith that the man paralyzed man possesses and the kind of faith he possesses is a faith that says Jesus if you say it I will do it I will be obedient uh, obedient so perhaps a question would be in our groups is how do we feel about obedience how do we feel about let's make it simple obedience to the teachings of God's word how do we feel when we're called to obedience Perhaps we hear a Sunday lesson and somebody says, this is what the Bible says, this is what is right to do. And how do we feel as we hear that? Is it a threat or is it a promise? Is it something we want to, to claim? I don't like using that word because it gets, un, un, it gets mis, misused. But in a sense, there's something, when we're called to obedience, there's something to claim. How do you feel about that? So the power of Jesus is conditioned by our obedience. Now, that's something, isn't it? That's something to think about. The power of Jesus is conditioned by our obedience. And when he calls us to obey, when God's word calls us to obey, it's such that, so that the power of God may be made manifest in our lives. I think that's a healthy way to think about obedience, don't you? Now, just to make this a little more practical, let me read a few verses from Acts chapter 2. So this year, the Thames Valley theme verse is Acts 2.42. I'll just read that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What might be the obedience issues in this verse for you and your local group? In what way could you 
be obedient to being people that learn together in the apostles' teachings, people who fellowship together, people who break bread together, people who pray together. What would that mean for you? How could you obey some things around that to enable the power of God to flow in and through you to this world in a way that we saw there in Acts Acts 2 and we saw in Mark chapter 2? So those are my thoughts on Mark chapter 2. I hope they're helpful. Um, Let me know what your thoughts are, any questions you have. Next week, we'll look at Mark chapter 3. If you want any more information, you should find it on the website. Until the next time, take care. God bless.